You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come. The whole night. Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be going back to the stories. Uh, we just finished up our series on Solar Lottery, so we'll jump back to the stories with Out in the Garden. And we'll stick with the stories for a few episodes before and starting another book, uh, The Cosmic Puppets. Okay, so Out in the Garden, originally published in fantasy fiction in August 1953. So again, as most of the stories we've been looking at lately, they come from this very prolific time in Dick's career when he wrote dozens of stories and had them published all over the, the, you know, the various magazines, science fiction and fantasy magazines that were popular at the time. You can find this story in The Paycheck, the first volume of the collected stories of, of Philip Dick. So what is in this story? Well, first, a couple things to say about this. This is a pure fantasy novel. Uh, it's not the first pure fantasy fantasy story. It's not the first pure fantasy story Dick wrote, but it's one of the most memorable. And it's his first real look at one of the themes that's going to really uh, be the center of Dick's writing for for really pretty much to the last novel, even to the, to the transmigration of, of Timothy Archer, and that is marriage, uh, relationships, family, the troubled relationship, the adulterous wife. These all kind of mix together. Um, the aloof husband. They all come together, and this is his pretty much his first effort to really uh, take it on in a direct way. So our main character in this novel is is Robert Nye. He's a middle-class man with a new wife living in the suburbs. So it's a very, very familiar setting for us, especially if you're a Philip Dick fan. He's talking with his friend Tommy Lindquist, and they're having kind of a small intimate get-together. Another totem of middle-class suburban life is kind of the intimate get-together with neighbors. They discuss a garden and Peggy Nye's, his wife's uh, favorite pet duck named Sir Francis. Lindquist, the friend, had met Peggy earlier, but only briefly, and he's instantly attracted to his to his new friend's um, wife. The fascination with the duck is a topic of conversation. Robert has little interest in the animal, but Peggy is clearly enamored with it. So you have this kind of uh, an obsession, which I think is another maybe totem of middle class life for Dick, this kind of unhealthy obsession. In this case, it's with a, a duck. Lindquist, in good humor, retells the story of Zeus, who comes in the form of a swan to seduce Leda, and of course, father's Helen of Troy, starting this this war, right? Um, this is all from the Iliad or the Hesiod. I, I, I think it's the Iliad. must be, because it's connected to Troy, but the story might be in the Hesiod, too. Anyways, a swan comes down, seduces Leda, and this story shocks Peggy, who out of the blue confesses that she's pregnant. She suggests that Tommy knew this and told the story to insult her. And Sir Francis hisses at Robert. And so we have the setup really in the first few pages here of, of a love triangle. But in this case, it's a duck. And we throw in, I mean, you got the surface love triangle between the three humans, but you add the, the duck, it kind of adds another level to it. And the pregnancy is very suspicious. Um, now later, sometime later, a son is born. We presume, you know, seven, eight months later, a son is born named Stephen. Tension in the Nye household has been high ever since the small garden get-together with Tommy. Strangely, the tension also exists increasingly between Robert and the duck, Sir Francis. Now, if you ever had the situation where you're, you have a partner, 
you're married, but your your spouses or your partner's animals don't like you, right? Um, Stephen King wrote a rather interesting tale about, you know, like the husband buys a cat for the wife, but he likes the cat and the wife bought a dog for the husband, but the dog ends up liking um, the wife a lot more. And that, that was really a major plot point in that story. I forget what the story was called. Um, that has to do with, with the murder of, of the wife at some point, the presumed murder of, of the wife. But the dog is a major plot point in that story. So this is this is something that's fairly um, common and fairly recognizable for people. And during all this, Robert is pondering Tommy's stories and his wife's fascination with the duck and his own growing animosity towards it. Although it's all rather silly, Tom, Robert, I mean, takes comfort in the fact that the burdens of child rearing will ensure the in the end that the time will will ensure the end of the time spent between Peggy and Sir Francis. When Robert sees Sir Francis digging for worms, I guess that's a ducky thing to do, he abruptly throws that animal into a car and drives him out into the countryside, presumably to, to let him out free in the wilderness, never to bother the Nye household again. With Sir Francis gone, Peggy is spending his her time with young Stephen. To Robert's chagrin, much of that time is spent in the same garden that Peggy used to spend with Sir Francis. Robert uh, feels he has little to share with his son, who enjoys the outdoors, he enjoys flowers, and most of all, he enjoys Peggy's stories. Now, Robert sees Stephen, the neighbor drawing, or sorry, sees Stephen, the, the son, drawing with crayons and feels momentary pride and a chance to bond with his son, who it turns out he's quite aloof from, doesn't seem to have anything in common with him. Robert talks about his own time as an artist in his youth and encourages his son to work on art. Now, you are, of course, at this point meant to question the parentage. Does he get this, the, the love of art from his, his father or does he get the love of the outdoors from his father? You know, we, we guess at this point, Sir Francis. Stephen addresses Robert by his first name, calling him Robert, not father, and asks about what happened to Sir Francis. This knowledge is apparently intuitive because neither Robert nor Peggy had told him about it previously. Stephen asked if Sir Francis looked uh, like the sun in his drawings. Robert, horrified, begins to again think that Stephen's birth was supernatural. So Stephen, still calling Robert by his first name, invites him to a secret garden party. The party goes very well and again proves a, provides a chance for Robert to feel he can bind with his son. However, when he comes upon the table Stephen has prepared, he finds it full of worms and spiders. Robert says he does not like that type of food and departs, apparently convinced that Stephen's real father is none other than Sir Francis. And of course, that's what we already have been meant to, to guess. So this story covers a lot of time, uh, the, the time from before S Stephen was born to a time he's old enough to prepare a meal for his, for his family. So what to do with this story? What to say about this? Well, obviously, this is a troubled marriage. The troubled marriage is one of Dick's most consistent themes. He comes to it again and again. He's obsessed with it. And if you know anything about his biography, you know he was married five times. And he was, you know, those a serial uh, monogamous kind of guy, right? He really believed in monogamy. He believed very strongly in marriage, even though he, he failed at it four times. I think he married the, you know, he married like the first girl he kissed or something um, back when he was in. I think he was working in the record store. That marriage didn't last long, but he had four more lengthy marriages. Um, from the first lines of the story to the end, the marriage between Robert and Peggy Knight is aloof and troubled. So 
above and beyond the adultery is just you have this indifferent marriage. And we're going to see it again in Human Is. We'll see it in uh, the father thing to a degree. There's a lot of stories where this, the marriage, kind of the, the, the starting point for Dick's marriages is aloofness and indifference and the inability to come together. And that's, that's going to come again and again. So it's not so much about even about the adultery. It's just about these two people who don't really fit, don't connect together. At one point, Robert is vocally annoyed that his wife returned home a few minutes earlier than expected. This apparently interfered with his alone time, right? We know how important that might be for a middle-class suburban man, but also what about family time, right? That's apparently not valued here. So the shadow of adultery hangs over the entire marriage, but they have very, very little in common. Peggy spends most of her time with other people, and the only sign of sexual attraction to Peggy comes from others, Tommy, the neighbor, and, and Sir Francis. Neither is Robert able to bond with, with Steve and his son, so he really has no connection to this family, except maybe kind of loyalty to the institution. Much of the tension comes from doubts over who is Stephen's father, but the relationship between these three people is awkward from the get-go. This is not atypical of how Dick describes the middle-class family in his stories and novels. Robert's quest to understand Stephen is the emotional core of the story, making the final confrontation that Stephen has, uh, or Frank, the final confirmation that Stephen is likely a half-duck, or half-divine probably, right, uh, more tragic. One way to read this, of course, is the critique of the paranoia of middle-class families uh, and how much they are obsessed with paternity certainty, right? Um, now, you can go back and read Sex at Dawn by um, Christopher Ryan and Casilda Jetha, and they talk a lot about the connection between the rise, the rise of marriage with civilization and property uh, with paternity certainty. Their thesis is that essentially in Paleolithic times, people didn't need to really care about who their who kids parents were even if they understood the relationship between sex and, and ch children it didn't matter who people's parents were because you didn't have property to pass on right it didn't really matter uh, whose whose daddy was because all resources were shared within paleolithic hunter-gatherer communities but with the rise of property where you'd have things like land or gold or other kinds of wealth or a craft you know, family skill that would live on beyond you, you know, it'd survive your death, right? Land does that. Gold does that. Uh, a skill set might do that. These are things that need to be passed on to the next generation, right? So with that, with the rise of property comes the need to ensure paternity. And what's our, what's our technology to do that before the days of Mori Povich? Well, obviously that would be marriage, family, right? And it always meant enforcing monogamy on women, because that's paternity certainty was never a problem for for the mother. It's always a who's your daddy problem, right? So you had to control the sexuality of of women. That's their argument. Uh, you can take it or leave it, but certainly there's a lot of paranoia in middle class families over paternity certainty and, aff and affairs, and you know, kind of who's been sleeping with you. It's a big source of gossip. It's a source of a lot of drama uh, to this day, right? A lot of reality television kind of circles around this question. Now the true cause of the, of our character's distance from Peggy and Stephen is his own inability to appreciate or take a part in their interests, right? But he's obsessed with paternity, right? But he doesn't actually ever at any point try to be a father. Robert tries to bridge his gap with Stephen through drawing, but this is only possible by bringing in the conversation to his own artistic pursuits, right? He's not really tied to what 
his son likes. He's tied to what his son, you know, might be providing to kind of his legacy. In the end, Robert sees himself as the patriarch of the family and refuses the subjectivity of others, including his son and, and certainly his wife. Robert has only himself to blame for this turmoil. Peggy's adultery, it's certainly odd uh, it's, to have this fixation on, on an animal, but it's not a big crime. It's merely an extension of the emotion, emotional separation between the two, right? Do we really blame anyone for having an affair when the marriage itself is fundamentally flawed? And this is a question that that Dick is going to come to again and again. And I, I you know, I know I jump ahead a lot because I have all these head books and stories in my head. But um, one of the opening scenes of Dr. Blood Money after the bombs drop is a man who's ecstatic. He's I think he's a traveling salesman or something. He's hiding in his car in his van with his merchandise after the bomb drops his immediate thought is i'm liberated from my family i'm liberated from my wife and now i can live my life um and we'll say more about that when we get to that that book but it's such an important moment in that story and it, it's kind of sums up the the theme of of that book here you, you know, have it too so let's keep adultery in mind as we read through dick's novels because i i think it's important to understand as important as the frontier i know i've been stressing the frontier a lot in this podcast but as important of the, as the frontier is marriage dick is openly influenced here by the greek mythology of bestiality of course it's referenced directly you have the neighbor laughing about it kind of joking you know ha, 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 ha. maybe she likes the duck because it's really a god or something the Greeks were fascinated by the potential of animal-human couples, human-god couplings, and grotesque creatures taking on the attributes of different animals. You've, of course, got Pan. You've got uh, all those kind of Clathana gods uh, floating around there, the dryads and the nymphs and all that. Those, you know, centaurs. These are all you know, human-animal hybrids, right? And there's an implication of, of human-animal sex with them, right? Now, is having sex with a centaur bestiality or not? I'm not sure. I uh, would have to go to an expert on bestiality to, you know, in the history of bestiality to come to a conclusion about that. But for the Greeks, the line between human and animal seems to have been blurred, at least partially. Uh, I think they had no doubt about the special nature of humanity. Certainly, if you read philosophy, you get that. But in their mythology, the, the line's more blurry and confused. Interspecies relationships is also a common theme in much science fiction writing. Uh, it's always, it's something that bothers a lot of hard science fiction fans, right? Like, like the Klingon human hybrid. I think even Star Trek had to retcon all this by giving all sentient species a common origin. I think that's in the last season of The Next Generation. You know, but so... It basically it became too much to stomach all the interspecies, you know, mating. Well, sex is one thing, but for them to have children, right? it's um, you know, it requires some kind of common descent, of course. Now, in Out of the Garden, this motif is largely used to interrogate the tensions of the middle class family. Though I, I don't think we can say much more about Greek mythology in here, except that it's referenced. Dick obviously knew about it. Um, so if you're interested in this topic, though, of bestiality, there's a really great book called Dearest Pet, which looks at the cultural history of bestiality. Um, but that's that's that. It's, well, I guess that does it for this story. I really like it. I think it's a really great story. And I, I think it's underappreciated. And 
it's something I'd really like to see in the upcoming Philip K. Dick anthology series. I hope they, they attempt it. Well, thanks for listening. I'm really happy to be back to these stories. I like them a lot. Um, but there it is. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. If you have any comments, please leave them below or share. Um, share this with people you know. I'd love to get more listeners. Once again, thank you for listening. Will tell on you when tears.